I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be hearing from sociologist and scholar of religious violence, Professor Mark Jurgensmeyer, author of the classic book, Terror in the Mind of God. The Global Rise of Religious Violence. This book was released in 2000, before 9-11, and is now on its fourth edition. Professor Jurgensmeyer and I discuss his work on religious violence in light of the October 7th Hamas attack and violent Israeli settlers wreaking havoc in the occupied West Bank. Professor Jurgensmeyer has actually spoken to Hamas leaders. He has done scholarly research on Hamas, on the settler movement and its messianic vision, as well as white supremacist terror organizations like the Covenant of the Sword and the Arm of the Lord. He is, in other words, one of the leading experts on the topic of extremists with, at the very least, religious imagery embedded within their rhetoric. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Professor Mark Jurgensmeyer. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very, very excited to be speaking with. Uh, it's been a while since I've read a lot of his work, but I remember reading it uh, during the global war on terror years. He's an American sociologist and scholar 
specializing in global studies and religious studies, and particularly the issue of religious violence, distinguished professor emeritus of sociology and global studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Mark Jurgensmeyer, welcome to Parallax Views. How are you doing today? Uh, I, it's strange asking how people are doing, given all the chaos going on in the world. But Personally, I'm doing fine. The world is not, but I'm doing fine. For people that are unfamiliar with your work, I want to read some of the titles of your books. So you've written uh, When God Stops Fighting, How Religious Violence Ends, God at War, A Meditation on Religion and Warfare, and the one book that I'm familiar with, Terror in the Mind of God, The Global Rise of Religious Violence. And you also wrote a book uh, back in 1993 called The New Cold War, which dealt with religious nationalism. Maybe you could talk about how you've come to this topic of religious violence and also uh, how you define religious violence and how it manifests politically. Yeah, well, first of all, I don't mean that religion causes violence. I'm sometimes been accused of using the phrase religious violence as if that meant religious religion causes violence. Well, we talk about religious music and we don't think religion causes music, right? Uh, all we mean is that religion in some way is related to music, and that's the interesting aspect. In what way is it related? In the same way, when I use the term religious violence, I don't mean that religion causes violence. I don't know of any case, in at least in recent history, where violence is due to purely religious reasons. If you think of religion solely in terms of uh, belief and uh, doctrine and dogma, uh, I mean, uh, Muslims are try not trying to force Islam down the throat of somebody else. Uh, it's a rather a matter of religious identity, where religion is a part of a social identity, a part of a culture, and they feel that that's what's being defended. And there are usually socioeconomic, political aspects uh, as well. And sometimes these are the most driving features that has a kind of religious coloring to it. Uh, and, and that's those different aspects of the way in which religion is related to violence is what I've what I've been studying. Now you ask, ask how I got involved in it. Well, I've always been interested in religion and politics. That's been, I have a background in studies in religion, but then I also have a PhD in political science and that's what I do. Uh, and a lot of my work has focused on India. So it was in the 1980s when an awful spiral of violence began between young Sikh um, men in the Punjab in northern India and the Indian government that resulted in the assassination of Indira Gandhi in 1984 uh, and a, a movement uh, linked with the idea of Khalistan, a separate Sikh state led by Sanjanal Singh Binarwali, uh, that really terrorized the state for a number of years. And this disturbed me for a number of reasons. Just intellectually, this is what I study. You know, how, how is it that at this point, religion has become associated with such brutal acts of violence? And then there was a personal level because I had taught college in the Punjab and these young men who were involved in the movement could have been my own students. And when I went back to the Punjab to interview them and to try to find out more about the movement, you know, there were instances when I would meet with young militants, often in secret meeting places because they didn't want to be revealed to the police. And when they took off their masks and revealed their young, fresh faces, my heart just broke because these could have been my students easily. And maybe some were. Uh, and there they were stripped, swept up in this 
a remarkable image of great warfare, great battle, which often I've described as cosmic war, a kind of metaphysical struggle between good and evil. And so that intrigued me. Uh, there were obviously economic motivations to uh, the involvement of young Sikh men, the whole Jat Sikhs, these are the rural uh, community of Sikhs, uh, felt alienated increasingly by the rise of urban power within the Punjab and the shift of economic influence. There are all these other uh, economic and political reasons for the rise of this movement, but it had this religious character to it that really interested me. And that started it. I decided insights that I gained from this uh, study that I would, in a sense, take on the road and look at other parts of the world and where religion seems to be playing an outsized role in movements of, of violence, revolutionary violence. And it seemed to be a global phenomenon, which really started me on a whole other path on global studies. Uh, but that's that's another subject. But that's the reason why it became a global uh, issue, a global study, because it seemed to me related to globalization uh, and the undercutting of the idea of nationalism and the nation state in a global era uh, and a kind of desperate quest, quest in some cases to hang on to a, a national identity, in many cases now claimed for out on the basis of ethnic and religious characteristics which often leads to genocide, you know, also leads to a kind of ethnic cleansing, which is in many cases a horrible thing to see, like in Myanmar, for example, uh, today, or kind of the actions in, the, in, in Turkey and other parts of the world where uh, attempt to try to make a, a state more nationalistic around a particular religious and ethnic uh, lines leads to terrible consequences. And of course, there's something of that in the current crisis between Israel and Hamas. Before we get into the current crisis, uh, when your book, The New Cold War, came out, that's an era that I think isn't looked at enough when it comes to religious violence. I mean, people know about the militia movement of the 90s. They may know about Timothy McVeigh, but I think at times people forget about the, at the very least, imagery of uh, sort of religious apocalypticism that informed those white supremacist and militia movements. So, for instance, I'm thinking of groups like the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, uh, or even uh, Ben Klassen, who, while claiming to be anti-religion or anti-Christian, uh, basically called for what he called racial holy war. Um, you know, and I think he found a thing called the Church of the Creator. So even with these people that claim not to be religious, they're sort of advocating a religious cosmology. Uh, how do you think that era of white supremacist and militia terrorism or extremism fits into the current moment? Well, I don't think that era is over, uh, alas. I think that we're seeing the continuation of some of those lines that uh, began uh, in the 1980s and, and even earlier. Um, do you think the religious uh, sort of iconography of those movements is often overlooked? Mean the anti-religious iconography, or the because because you're right in saying they're often anti-church. For example, Timothy McVeigh uh, was a great was a follower of a, a novelist who wrote about um, cosmotheism, the idea that that true religion is was betrayed by Christianity, at least church religion, uh, and and even a conservative Christianity uh, gave in to the kind of uh, the liberal forces of the day and 
allowed for uh, a, you know a compromise with secular nationalism, which it desperately resisted. Uh, and so the whole point of cosmotheism was to have a religious movement, and it was described that way: an order of white, pure men. Uh, you know that that was described as kind of white Protestant heterosexual men. <laughs> it was a kind of you know an army of brave uh, stalwarts who would resist uh, the forces of liberal secularism and was described in religious terms. This order, it was called the order with capital O, uh, people would be initiated into and you would have. So all of this was in the background of Timothy McVeigh. He loved this book. He sold it at gun shows. He had a whole stack of them in the trunk of his car. Right. The Turner Diaries. Yeah, the the Turner Diaries. Exactly. Uh, By... I think the pseudonym was Andrew McDonald, but in any event, uh, this is uh, this is part of their kind of the worldview that they uh, were privy to some secret source of information and a hidden war that they saw a great battle and that that they wanted to bring to uh, reality in these acts of violence, which we saw as just hideous uh, acts like the bombing of the World Trade Center. That just seemed to come from nowhere, uh, but in Timothy McVeigh's mind, it was a demonstration of the war that was already going on in his mind, uh, and he expected and hoped it would be a wake-up call uh, to you know concerned Christians uh, throughout the country that they would rise up and storm against the liberal uh, establishment. Of course, that didn't happen, uh, but I think that was a part of the logic, and that was part of the logic of the bombing of the World Trade Center, also, and a remarkably similar kind of. Uh, a structure along a similar kind of motivation, although a different religion, of course. Uh, and, and that, too, was an attempt to try to wake up, in this case, Muslims around the world to take up the arms and fight and to see that there was a cosmic war against the West. And this didn't wake up Muslims around the world, but it did wake up Americans. And so the United States was the one part of the world that did buy into this image of great war, the war on terror, uh, that then uh, in some ways uh, was a, a success of the of the uh, attack on the World Trade Center. They they got their point across. We saw it as a war and we began to act like a war. And of course, uh, the war led to awful consequences, including the invading and occupying of two Muslim countries. So what is it about you know, all these different groups, whether we're talking about a white power group yelling Rahoa uh, or um, a jihadi group, what is it about the the iconography of sort of um, religious apocalypticism or this this idea of cosmic war that is able to, I guess, um, bring people to the cause? Why is that religious imagery and rhetoric so powerful? And so seductive. Uh, well, why are computer games so seductive? Why why do twelve year old boys uh, spend something like, you know, twelve to fourteen hours a day uh, on, on computer games wrapped up in imaginary wars, in which they, you know, whether it's uh, you know I, I've forgotten now some of the names of the uh, the one time I was in sort of trying to understand computer games to understand this exactly the psychology you're talking about, uh, because I think there is a the kind of direct relation and does explain the 30,000 or so young people, including a lot of <clears throat> um, Westerners who are not from Muslim backgrounds, uh, but who took up the jihadi cause and went to Syria and Iraq to join to join ISIS. 
And I'm sure it was the thrill of battle, the thrill of being a part of something great, a huge a cosmic war. This was like computer game on steroids. They were actually out there chopping off heads and doing really badass stuff, you know, and now it's the chance to really show that you're a man. <clears throat> Unfortunately, they didn't show it for very long because almost all these people were killed. Uh, they were used as cannon fodder, fodder and suicides attacks, which is a very clever device on the part of uh, ISIS. They didn't have to waste any of their own Arab Muslims. They had all of these foreigners coming in willing to kill themselves. Uh, and unfortunately, they used them in very brutal ways. Can you talk a little bit more about this concept of cosmic war? And I know one of your uh, students, uh, you were the thesis advisor for Risa Aslan, uh, yes. who also covers this topic of cosmic war. But if people are unfamiliar with that concept, what exactly does it mean? Well, this is the, what I explored in the fairly recent book, God at War. Uh, and th there is a relationship between religion and war in, in almost every image of war, in almost every image of religion, uh, which is very interesting. You know, uh, every war seems to have God uh, on one side or the other, and surprisingly, it seems to be invariably on one's own side. Uh, but nonetheless, there's, you know, w when the attack on the World Trade Center happened, the big the song that was popular was God Bless America. And suddenly there was a kind of religious uh, frame to our uh, the, the loyalties that this evoked in Americans against this a struggle of the evil enemy, which was defined, again, in religious terms, those awful Muslims coming out to get us, which, of course, was not the case. It was just a handful of very angry and desperate people in a cave in Afghanistan. But we imagined it to be a horde of people uh, nonetheless. So every religion has, every war has this, and every religion has it, as these images that go back to great battle. Like look at the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, for example, and it's in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament that I have the quote that I use in the beginning of the terror in the mind of God, which is the only passage of scripture I could find in which God is portrayed as a terrorist. Uh, and the scripture says, I will spread my terror before me, says the Lord. Well, <laughs> even in the Quran and the passages of, of warfare, which are actually fairly, fairly seldom, less than in the Old Testament, uh, God is not actually battling alongside the soldiers and going into war, <laughs> which I is one of the reasons why I titled my book, Terror in the Mind of God. When, when one thinks that it's not just our war, but God's war, then it really changes the equation in a very dramatic sense. And can I tell one story along those yes, lines? Yes, I would love to. Yeah, if you could. Because it has to do with Hamas. Uh, as you know, I've interviewed uh, the leaders of Hamas, including the founder, Sheikh Yassin, and Dr. Rantisi. The, the... Real, real quick, I was going to say, if people want to learn more about that, you recently wrote a piece in the Santa Barbara... Uh, independent entitled um, Why Hamas Persists, but go on. Yeah, right. Um, and and I cover this in the book, Terror in the Mind of God. But in that uh, interview with Dr. Rantisi, I was trying to argue with him a little bit and, and question the motivations of allowing for suicide bombings. Uh, he, he, of course, he corrected me and said that we Muslims don't believe in suicide and we don't send people out on these suicide missions, but we believe in martyrdom uh, and we allow people to martyr themselves if that's what they choose to do. And I said, okay. 
But I said, as a strategy, I said, it's not a very effective one. I mean, Israel has one of the largest armies in the Middle East, and you're not going to change things by these sporadic acts of suicide bombings, as awful as they are for people who are affected. Uh, I, I said, well, I don't understand the point of them, even from from a point of view of military strategy. Uh, and he said, well, we're at war. And I said, I understand you see the world that way. He says, this is, but this is a battle that, may not be won in our lifetime, or even my children's lifetime, or even in my children's children's lifetime, but in my children's 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 lifetime, we may succeed because this is not our war. This is God's war. So if you think this is God's war, this allows for all kinds of things. The timeline is very long and the assurances are very certain that it's going to be a victory. It's God's war after all. Uh, so if there are skirmishes, if you lose uh, temporarily, if there's a setback and it seems like there is no hope, well, don't despair because things will turn around uh, and that ultimately you'll be a victor because this is God's war. Just keep on trying. <laughs> and it's a remarkable notion, but it does explain a lot of the persistence and the seeming ability to accept failure on a lot of movements who are kind of seized with this notion of cosmic war and an apocalyptic end, which is another way of thinking it is simply cosmic war at the end of time, uh, where time is rushing towards a great moment of confrontation after which there'll be a world of peace. Uh, this is the uh, kind of portrayal in the book of Revelation, but it's it's there in Buddhist traditions, it's there in Islamic traditions, both Shia and Sunni traditions. Uh, so it's a familiar, apocalypse is a familiar idea uh, and an appealing one because it does then it, it gives a kind of portrayal of, of of cosmic time that gives hope for the future uh, even though the travails of the present uh, are are deep and the suffering is considerable and the failures are frequent uh, but ultimately there will be success there will be peace uh, because that's the end hope of any kind of apocalyptic vision I wanted to ask you, in terms of Hamas, I believe you've listened to, you know, tapes of uh, members of Hamas before they martyr themselves. Uh, what is the sort of mindset of, uh, you know, a, a member of Hamas, uh, someone that's willing to do a suicide bombing? Because I think what we always hear is, uh, oh, they're just looking for the 72 virgins in the afterlife. And I know that that's not your analysis, that it's a lot deeper than that. Yeah, it's not just my analysis. It's, as, as you say, listening to these tapes of whether they're kind of the last will and testament, the tapes that are made uh, the night before young men go out on these suicide missions. Uh, and, and they never talk about those <laughs> virgins in heaven, uh, which which is not, uh, not in the Quran in any event. Um, talk about pleasures in heavens, but the, the number of virgins, this is a kind of later uh, Islamic uh, legend. Uh, so it's not a strong, uh, what, what is strong in the minds of the young people is, is their, uh, their feeling that they're doing something for the community, that they are making their, their community proud, that themselves proud. Uh, <clears throat> these are, after all, young men who probably don't have a job, you know, unemployment in the West Bank and, and Gaza is, uh, is well over 50%, especially for young people and young men. 
and then without a job you can't get married and without being married you can't have sex so you know the levels of frustration must be pretty terrific and and also the feeling that you know you're on a nowhere track uh and to to glorify yourself and your name and your cause in this moment of glory seems to be a great mission and uh often guys will uh, you know they'll join together a group or uh, two buddies you know there'll be a kind of pact uh to you know this is going to this is going to make our names and so the these last uh, uh statements are usually all about honor and pride and community and um, pointing out the meaningless of most people's death you know they say well you could fall off a donkey and you die you could you know you could you know get hit by a truck you could die you know but seldom do we have a chance to to make something significant out of our deaths and so um, so they see it and in that way uh, rather than than uh, you know as a I don't know, a strategic move or uh, attempt to achieve something in, in, in heaven. You know, there are, uh, you know, also pictures of these parades of living martyrs. And these are people who have agreed to go on suicide missions. And they appear in uh, parades clothed in white, uh, which is, you know, the kind of symbol of death. And but also masks, so you can't see their face and they can't be identified. Uh, and when they appear in uh, in a crowd, you know, in, in Gaza or the West Bank, there'll be a huge roar of appreciation and um, people see, you know, just startled to see them and, uh, you know, amazed that they would be willing to do this on behalf of the community, which is the way they portray it and the way it's often often seen. Although, of course, the immediate family, uh, the mothers of such victims are, are just, of course, that actually leads me to a, another point that I wanted to get to, which is who are the kinds of men that are drawn to sort of um, religious violence? Because I think people have it in their head that they're, you know, dropouts or, you know, just outsiders. But a lot of these people are family men or in the case of someone like uh, the Israeli mass murder and I would say terrorist uh, Baruch Goldstein – that man was a, a medical doctor, I believe. So it, it seems like people would be surprised by the type of people that get pulled in uh, to this sort of way of thinking about cosmic war. Yeah, I, you know, their worldview may be skewed, but these are none of the people that I've interviewed or I know about who have taken a part in these uh, these terrible missions are are are. Um, psychologically uh, deranged in any obvious way. Uh, I'm not a psychologist, of course, but at least that's my impression. They seem they seem pretty normal. And as you say, many of them are uh, family people. All of the uh, hijackers uh, that were involved in the attack on 9-11, for example, were fairly well-established uh, uh, working people, have, uh, you know, had jobs in New Jersey and so forth, and uh, family. Uh, so, so you're right. They, these are not dead end deadbeats. I mean, some are. Uh, no question about that. Some people who are kind of kind of desperate in life, and and they 
this seems to be a, a kind of way of glorifying themselves, like these young men I just uh, talked about. Uh, but, but others just see this as an a, a honor, duty. There's a tremendous sense of uh, you know pride of feeling that this is an important mission that's going to make their name, it's going to really change things. Um, so all of those motivations that, you know, leads anybody into military service or to in, someone who's in military service to volunteer for a very dangerous mission, uh, it's the same kind of motivation. In your Santa Barbara in an independent piece, Why Her, Hamas Persists, this leader that you spoke to uh, within Hamas uh, said to you something that really stuck with you. He said, besides, we need to show them that we're still at war. And you said that last sentence was very, very telling. Why is that? Maybe you can explain that in more detail. Well, it, it's what I said before, that often acts of violence that seem to us to be foolish acts of terrorism uh, are meant to send um, a uh, send a message. And the message is simply the image of warfare, <clears throat> that we're at war. Uh, and that image of warfare is meant to have a couple audiences. One is the supporters or the would-be supporters of the movement to challenge them to get involved in the war, to step up and, and really uh, you know, take part in it. Uh, and the other challenge is for the enemy to be be aware that you're vulnerable, that uh, you know you can be you can be attacked. Uh, and this is certainly the effect that 9-11 had on Americans. It was a tremendous sense of vulnerability and shame. This is certainly the effect that the Hamas attack on October 7th had on Israel, uh, the feeling that Israel's security was not as secure as they thought it was. Uh, and it, this has had a devastating effect on the, the kind of psyche, uh, the public psyche, the national psyche of many Israelis. Uh, so in that sense, it's had... Uh, exactly the effect it was meant to achieve. <clears throat> These are symbolic acts They're in most cases. They're not strategic in the sense that they're not part of a larger military operation. You know, after 9-11, you didn't expect, you know, boats to suddenly appear in New Jersey and, you know, squads of jihadis unload themselves and start attacking the, the casinos in Atlantic City. That wasn't going to happen. Uh, it was a one-off thing. You know, the 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 image itself was the point. <laughs> you know, once you once you got that picture, you got the message. You didn't need any creeper underneath the television screen that said, you know, this terrorist act is brought to you by such and such for the such and such reason. No, all you had to do was look at it, and you know, immediately war came to your mind, and that's the point. Much has been made of the potential motivations of Hamas in the October 7th attack. And one thing that I've repeatedly heard from a number of different experts is that with the Abraham Accords, uh, you know, the Palestinian issue was sort of shelved. It was, uh, you know, something that was put in the background. And the message that Hamas was sending with this attack was, you know, we're still here, we're still at war, and we're not going to let you forget about the issue. Is that part of what you think motivates Hamas in, in this particular instance? Well, I think that was the message, but I don't think it was necessarily triggered by the Abraham Accords. <clears throat> Remember, this was an enormously complicated operation. Uh, I've never seen a terrorist act that's been so well thought out uh, and so uh, so so kept secret for so long, uh, in uh, inclu including a remarkable number of people who would have to be involved in it. 
and remember, they manufactured most of these rockets that were used, hundreds of them, uh, maybe thousands. Uh, so th there's no doubt that some of the supplies and material came from Iran, uh, but there's also no doubt that, that that much of it was actually manufactured by factories uh, deep underground in these uh, cave uh, labyrinths uh, under underneath uh, the streets of Gaza. Uh, so this had to be going on for years. Uh, this is not something that was planned a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> this has been a long-term thing. Uh, and maybe they've been ready to do this for a while, and they were looking for an opportune time. Uh, and this was opportune for a number of reasons, not least of which that Netanyahu was, you know, busy with his political problems of his own. And also he had shifted a number of the troops to the West Bank, and they were no longer patrolling the border between Israel and and uh, and the and Gaza. They thought everything was quiet in Gaza. <clears throat> Besides, they had all this electronic surveillance. They had all these these cameras up there that would follow everything. They could see everything immediately, unless, of course, drones came in the middle of the night and <laughs> took out all the cameras, which is, in fact, what uh, Hamas did very cleverly, uh, so that for hours the Israeli headquarters had no idea what was going on because they couldn't see it. The cameras had been taken out. I wanted to ask you as well, you mentioned uh, George W. Bush and the global war on terror. I know that you've been a critic of how things played out under the Bush presidency. Uh, where did Bush go wrong? And does this tie into criticisms, or not criticisms, but warnings that the Biden administration have given Netanyahu, where the B Biden administration officials have said, you know, don't do what we did after 9-11. Uh, can you comment on all of that? No, I think that's exactly what they were thinking about. <clears throat> and there, there were two mistakes. And uh, of Bush. Understandable mistakes, however. And the first was to think of this uh, terrorist act in terms of war. Uh, in the first uh, cabinet meeting afterward, the weekend after the attack, uh, when everybody came back, including Colin Powell, uh, actually the only person who argued against thinking of this as war was the general, was Colin Powell. He said, no, it's a terrorist attack. You know, it's a relatively small group of people. You shouldn't magnify its importance in thinking of it in terms of war. But as soon as you did, and and Bush did on on the day after, this was the this became the headlines, and all I've gone back and looked at the newspapers, and I can tell you that suddenly, you know, the the day of the attack, on 9/11, uh, it was simply called an attack, a horrible thing, and uh, I think it was the San Francisco Examiner just had a picture of the of the World Trade Center, uh, you know, blowing up, and the word the bastards <laughs> over it. Uh, and, and that's kind of the way it was seen, a horrible act. But it was the next day that it became a war, uh, when Bush said, this is not just a savage act, it's a war, uh, and we'll find these people wherever they are. And then he said, and this was the second mistake, whatever country harbors them. And then bells went off in my mind, and I said, aha, he's going to attack Afghanistan. Uh, and the reason for that, largely, <clears throat> was that he could. I mean, nobody liked Afghanistan as a ratty little Taliban administration that <clears throat> barely had any international recognition. It was just a couple of countries, uh, UAE, uh, Pakistan, which quickly took away its recognition. Uh, so, And it appeared that Osama bin Laden, who seemed to be the most likely person involved in organizing 9-11, turned out he wasn't. 
uh, it was Sheikh Mohammed, as the 9-11 Commission has reported. Uh, but nonetheless, it seemed like you had the mastermind, you had the location, and you could go in and get him. Well, you could have just gone in and gone in and got him <laughs> the way ultimately was done in the Obama administration when, when uh, bin Laden was found actually at a military base in, in northern Pakistan. <clears throat> but no, they decided they would invade uh, Afghanistan. And uh, that, that, of course, led to the longest occupation of war in recent American history. And it, so it sounds like these uh, figures of religious violence, it's almost like they want to uh, trap their enemies in a way. They want the enemy to be brought into this cosmic war and to respond as if it's cosmic war. Is that correct? Yeah. And I don't know whether Hamas expected exactly this reaction of Israel, but there's no question that this was um, that this the the attack on on Hamas uh, on Gaza, and I want to say this carefully because I don't want to appear as if I'm in any way defending Hamas or any way think that that Israel doesn't have the right to track down the organization and to dismantle it and destroy it any way it can. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, it, it, it's just that, and as an outside observer, this kind of a broad uh, and, and enormously destructive attack on the buildings above the underground caves where the Hamas uh, operatives were dwelling doesn't seem to be the most effective military strategy in the world. Uh, on the other hand, it is very effective if your point is to try to show the Israeli population that you are tough and you're striping back and that you're doing something. And this, of course, is exactly what Bush was demonstrating in the attack on Afghanistan. We're doing something. We're going and getting them. We're invading that country. We're taking it over. We're we're, we're doing the military response to a, a terrorist act. It's a disproportionate kind of response, uh, but it, it's one that seemed to be um, appealing to Americans at the time in the same way that I think the attack on Gaza is appealing to Israelis right now. Uh, and, and there's evidence for that and that uh, anyone who speaks out in any way to try to to defend Palestinians, the ordinary Palestinians who are caught in the, in this, the crossfire of this battle uh, are, are immediately uh, shut down and in some cases actually um, put in jail uh, as being disloyal or treasonous in Israel. Uh, so the mood of the country is certainly one of of, of retribution, of wanting to get back uh, at those at people who perpetrated this horrible horrible deed, which is understandable. Uh, it, it's just, I think, not very effective militarily, and it also can lead to long term negative con consequences, just as America's invasion of Afghanistan and then Iraq has done by you know, fueling unrest and, and distrust of America around the world, particularly in the Muslim world. Uh, and, and I think, unfortunately, the same thing will happen uh, with Israel. And already you can see the response of Arab countries uh, in a very negative way. Uh, and also the degree to which ordinary Palestinians, including ordinary Palestinians in Gaza, who hated Hamas, and by the way, the majority of people in, in Gaza, most likely, I say most likely, we don't have any 
we don't have statistics on it. There hasn't been an election in Gaza in 12 years. Uh, but but it, it seems that at least a significant number, if not the majority, of residents of Gaza despise Hamas and would eagerly get rid of them. Uh, but unfortunately, now they've become the victims in, in this broad-scale attack against uh, against Gaza, which is, in my mind, tragic on, on a couple levels. One, it doesn't seem to be very effective in actually getting at the Hamas leadership. Uh, and secondly, the, the kind of long-term negative consequences may be difficult to reverse. Just a few more things here, if you have the time. One thing that I really wanted to talk about you with you uh, is... Uh, the issue of religious extremism uh, within Israeli society. Uh, recently, we had Netanyahu make these comments about, you know, remember what Amalek did to you, invoking the biblical story of Amalek. And I feel like that that's one thing that could cause problems uh, with Palestinians who who may see that because it's a it's a frightening thing for him to say if you know the story. And then you also have these uh, violent settlers um, in the West Bank. Uh, you've sort of delved into this in your book, in the chapter Zion Betrayed from uh, Terror in the Mind of God. What is your analysis of the settler movement? Yeah, and I don't know which edition of the Terror in the Mind of God you're referring to, but in the most recent edition, the fourth edition, uh, you'll you'll see that I go, go to uh, the West Bank, to the settler areas, uh, and talk with some of the young people associated with the Hilltop Gang, uh, which are young Israelis uh, in the settler uh, towns who then prey upon Palestinians down in the villages. Uh, and in one case, they went down and uh, set on fire a Palestinian home, burning alive a family, including a couple of kids, in a, just a horrific manner. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> and, and I went to that village and talked with relatives of the family to try to get their perspective on on the situation. So uh, this vision, which I uh, initially described in <clears throat> in the 1990s, when I first went to uh, Israel and, and looked at the, the radical right, as well as the beginning of the Hamas movement, at that time was led by a, 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 a fellow, Mayor Kahane, a rabbi from Brooklyn who went back to Israel and, and led uh, the, the Koch party, uh, which is a very right-wing extremist party, which advocated the removal of all Palestinians in, in the West Bank. And his slogan was that Israel would never be Israel until it was biblical Israel. And for that, he met all of the West Bank cities, Jericho and Hebron and all of these cities that are mentioned in the Bible. And, and he said, no, nothing against Palestinians. They just happen to be in the wrong place, the wrong time, and they just need to believe. He said, they're nomadic people anyway, they can go somewhere else. Of course, that's not true, but nonetheless, uh, Palestinians who live there feel that they have as much right to the territory, a generational one, as you know, certainly as Israelis. But, um, but nonetheless, that was the spirit at the time. And they were very marginal. What has changed is the growth of the movements of the right-wing movements and the and the kind of influence they now have on the Israeli government that they've never had before and that's true in part because of the nature of Israeli politics that requires a coalition of parties i mean the netanyahu actually got not a large number of votes in the last i think it was like 20 something percent uh and but it 
he was able to create a kind of plurality by patching together, uh, you know, all of these smaller political parties into a consensus government. <clears throat> and some of them are very right wing indeed. So these people are now part of the part of the of, of the government, part of the cabinet. And he has to appeal to them and appease them in some way. So much of this language is meant for this right wing uh, consumption uh, of of people who who support it. Just just as right wing parties in the United States appeal to kind of Christian nationalists in a way that that, that may may feel that 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 uh, the, the 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 right wing leaders have the have their interests at heart, uh, and so the same thing is true with Netanyahu. He, he's a politician, uh, but he's a cagey one, uh, and he he knows where his bread is buttered, and he wants to make sure that, that he has a strong support from these people who now have allowed him to stay in power. Right. He's sort of fed these figures like uh, Bezalil Smotrich and uh, Itamar ben Um it, It's interesting. I do not have that edition of your book where you deal with the Hilltop Youth. What was your experience like uh, dealing with the Hilltop Youth? Uh, what did you get out of them? Oh, the, they share, the leader of the gang is a guy named Mayor Ettinger. Uh, and I, I thought, well, it's... You know, he has the same first name as Mayor Kahani, but his last name is not Kahani. Uh, but then I discovered his mother's last name is Kahani. He's Mayor Kahani's grandson. So th there's literally, <laughs> and when I discovered that, it kind of chills went through my body. Uh, there, there's literally a continuation of that line of thinking into the, the present, present movement. Uh, and, you know, young people, if they're seized with a kind of dramatic cosmic war vision, uh, you know, they get into it with all with gusto. And unfortunately, uh, ethnic cleansing is a part of the consequence. I was just going to add to that. One thing that I've often heard from Israelis I've spoken to uh, when they talk about the Hilltop Youth is that I think a lot of people just see them as almost um, like juvenile delinquents, angry young men. Uh, is it a matter of both like an angry young men thing and a sort of religious fanaticism at the same time? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like like a lot of warfare. <laughs> uh, before you get going, I also wanted to ask you, because I've been rereading uh, Terror in the Mind of God, I believe I'm reading the uh, 2001 edition. But, you know, I noticed Baruch Goldstein gets mentioned a lot. I think I count it 85 times. So what? who was Baruch Goldstein and um, what's your analysis of him? Oh, Goldstein was a medical doctor who um, who lived in Kiryat Arba, which is a uh, a settlement right near the city of Hebron. Like all settlements, it's illegal. Uh, but in this case, it's maybe more illegal than most because it's way out, not near the borders of Israel, like Ariel and some of the other large settlements, are the ones right around Jerusalem. It's way out near the city of Hebron. And it's, it's there in part because that's the tomb of the Cave of the Patriarchs, where Abraham and Isaac, Sarah, their tombs are. And it's, it's a kind of shrine that's holy to all the Abrahamic faiths, to Judaism, to Islam, and to Christianity. And so there is a synagogue and a mosque and a church on, on that site. And, and Goldstein was, in a sense, the very idea that the Muslims would claim 
this space. But more importantly, he felt shamed that that there'd be catcalls of young Muslim kids uh, as he and other members of the Kirit Arba settlement would go by. Uh, and and that soldiers would, Israeli soldiers were standing nearby, would do nothing to stop them. Well, because there were kids just shouting, you know, and calling them names and, you know, accusing them of being, I don't know, idolaters or something, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, at one point he just got fed up. Uh, and so he took a, a gun, a rifle. He was uh, uh, kind of uh, on some sort of reserve with the IDF, so he had um, military-grade weapons at his command, uh, and went into the mosque area uh, and just started shooting people and killing them. Uh, and and then he became something of a, a martyr figure, and then he himself was killed uh, in that same attack. Uh, and so he became a kind of martyr figure in uh, Kirit Arbra, where they created a shrine uh, kind of in, in, in his memory, uh, which I found as interesting as the act itself. So it kind of gives you an, a feeling for the passions that are involved in uh, these settler movements, many of which are, are not, not just for housing convenience, but for strident uh, religious slash political reasons to try to claim this area as biblical land and therefore true Israeli territory. It's interesting, too, with Goldstein, because I think th we don't have nearly as much volume of personal information about him as we do, say, a Timothy McVeigh. But we do have that one, I believe it was a letter to the editor of the New York Times in the 80s that got reprinted in the 90s. Uh, yeah. What do we know about his path towards this sort of uh, extremist ideology? Well, I mean, as you said, the most radical thing he had done previous to this was write a letter to the editor of the New York Times. So it's not that he had a lot of experience in in, in militant organizing. He was connected with the IDF, and as I say, kind of on reserve. And he actually was the person that they would often call if there was some sort of incident in the area. So paradoxically, after the after he attacked the the mosque at the tomb of the, of the patriarchs, the IDF was trying to get in touch with him to find out what had happened, <laughs> but not realizing that he himself was the was the attacker, and by that time had been killed by the by the by the mob by the other uh, Muslims who were you know managed to catch him and and, and do away with him. Uh, so you know it was kind of bottled up anger that he was kind of carried with him for a long period of time that just exploded. Uh, one or two more questions. I promise I'll let you go because I've kept you a little bit longer. But, um, you know, I've had a lot of guests come on recently uh, that are experts on the region that will say that some of these sort of the, the, the violent elements of the settler uh, movement, uh, the Hilltop Youth and whatnot, and Hamas, on the other hand, are almost... Um, mirror images of each other in some ways. I'm I'm wondering what you think of that sentiment. Well, no, they're not mirror images of each other. Uh, they're different in so many different ways, including organizationally. Uh, but there is, um, in one sense, a similarity uh, that they have a strident kind of religious cast to their political uh, affiliations. 
And, and you know, the, the common kind of image is that they're, those Muslims and Jews, they've been at each other's throats for thousands of years. There's nothing we can do about it. Well, that's simply not true. <laughs> it's not not even hundreds of years. In, in fact, the the situation in Israel and Palestine was was not stable, but at least the struggle was certainly a secular one before 1990, uh, and, and secular on both sides. The state of Israel was very consciously modeled in, on a secular uh, model of government, uh, even though, of course, it was created to be a state for to, to, to protect Jews after, particularly after the Holocaust. Uh, but it, it was modeled to be uh, to be a, a democracy and and open uh, even today. The you know, a fairly sizable percentage of the voting public in Israel are Arabs uh, and, and Muslims, and not uh, not Jews. So it, it, it was modeled after uh, on a on a democratic model. And on the Palestinian side, the Fatah, the main movement and the Palestinian Authority that then became <clears throat> you know, based on Fatah and other similar movements, were also very secular. Um, Yasser Arafat, who was the um, leader of the of Fatah, was himself a secularist. I've talked with members of his family, and they said there's no they weren't religious in any a kind of obvious way. He was married to a Christian, I mean a Palestinian Christian, but she wasn't a Muslim. Uh, so it, it, it was not a, in any sense a religious movement. It was a, a movement for Palestinian sovereignty and the Palestinian lands. These were quite, these are struggles over over land, <laughs> and, and that's why they could under Rabin and, and Arafat when Bill Clinton uh, met with them in in Camp David, and then in, over the pictures of him in the Rose Garden with the two leaders coming to a kind of <clears throat> semi agreement. At least a handshake, uh, and, and then it was shortly after that Rabin was killed, uh, right by uh, Yigal Amir, yeah, by a Jew, exactly. And when I talked with his widow, she said that you know they had often discussed the dangers that Rabin had had, but they never thought he would be attacked by a Jew. Uh, but of course, he was a follower of Mayor Kahane and the kind of you know kind of messianic uh, vision of a. Of, of a biblical Israel, uh, did they that, view so? So, did Amir view Rabin as betraying that biblical vision? Yeah, he talked about it as a train out of control. You know, they couldn't couldn't be stopped, uh, and that they needed to stop it before it, it would lead in the direction that would forever make it impossible for the West Bank to be a part of biblical Israel. So. Um, so certainly that that kind of religionization of both movements, and then of course Hamas developing as a as a counter to Fatah and the Palestinian Authority um, on, on a religious basis. And when I went to meet with um, the, uh, the Sheikh Yassin, the founder of Hamas, uh, on his wall were two pictures, and one was a picture of the, the uh, Dome of the Rock, indicating that. that the Palestinians were stewards of this third more most important shrine in Islam. And the other was a, a picture of a kind of cartoon that showed the, the Quran as if it had hands superimposed on a map from Morocco to Indonesia, which is kind of the span of the Muslim world with Palestine right in the middle. 
So it, it was clearly a political, a religious vision. And uh, what he told me in my talk with him is that Palestine would never be free until it is Muslim Palestine. So it, 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 around the 1990s on both sides, there was a religionization of the politics, a, a minority view at that time. And when I first reported on it, it was as a kind of disturbing, but minority view. And now, of course, it's become much more than that on 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 both sides. And why is that? Why why did that change occur? It's an interesting question, and, and it, certainly part of it is that trajectory is similar around the world. That there is a kind of movement towards authoritarian right wing um, ethno religious nationalism, seemingly everywhere, uh, including in our own country, uh, and, and so I think. A similar question can be asked in, in all of those cases. Uh, what is it? What is the kind of uh, maybe fear of globalization, a feeling that the world is getting out of control, that we've lost our identity, we've lost our grounding, we've lost our sense of ethno-nationalist community, and we need to regain that? Uh, that could be one element. Uh, and certainly a kind of a frustration with the way uh, that, you know secular politics had been leading a society uh, in many cases was corrupt in many cases seemed to be lacking vision or moral clarity uh, one thing i often hear is this feeling of uh feeling left behind is another thing i hear from people that tend towards uh extreme ways of thinking yeah i think that's quite true i i, I grew up in the midwest in uh, southern illinois in an area that's more uh, is closely allied culturally and socially to kentucky and and Arkansas and Southern Missouri than, than it is to Chicago, <laughs> that part of Illinois. Uh, and when I go back, as I, as I frequently do, I still have, you know, friends and property there uh, and meet with my old classmates. Uh, many of them are very, you know, stridently kind of Christian nationalists and, uh, you know, Trump supporters and a feeling that that uh, they've been they've been left out. He says, you people on the on the coast, you know, you, you ignore us. You just treat us like we're nothing. And I think that's partly because the the media, uh, you know, display happy families and groups of people in Los Angeles and New York, but not in St. Louis or Paducah, Kentucky. So it, it sounds like what you're saying is that, you know, this uh, religionization that went on uh, with the Israel-Palestine issue is probably part of a bigger global phenomenon, a broader global well, phenomenon. Well, that's that's certainly one element of it. I, that certainly doesn't explain it all. There are certainly local factors that that, that also explain it. The kind of uh, politics on both sides uh, and a disenchantment with uh, uh, with more secular leadership and the kind of pressures to cement the power with the religious connections on both sides, both the the Hamas and and uh, and the uh, Netanyahu sides. I think that's also a factor. Last thing, at the end of your article uh, in the Santa Barbara Independent, you write, but if both Netanyahu and Hamas are right, and this is war, then it cries out for what is often the resolution of wars. It calls for explorations of solutions to the underlying conflict that will lead not just to a temporary stalemate, but to an enduring peace. I want to talk about what you meant by that, and uh, for my part, I just want to say, I haven't often looked at this conflict as being a religious one. I often look at it through the land lens. 
And I feel like it needs to go back to that. You almost need to cut out the metaphysical aspects, but uh, I don't know if you agree with that. I just wanted your comments on what what it will take uh, to end this uh, just conflict that's been going on so long now. No, I think you're absolutely right. It's it's a it's a a complicated series of 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 differences uh, at, at which land, of course, is at the heart of it, and often portrayed in a religious lens. But I don't think it bases a religious dispute. It, it is a dispute over two sets of people who feel like the property is traditionally theirs. And this is not the only example uh, in the in the world. Uh, Kashmir, for example, is another, or Northern Ireland. Now, Northern Ireland is an interesting example because that's one where there was, in fact, a peace settlement. Uh, and they did come to a kind of shared agreement of governance in Northern Ireland uh, of two sets of people who deeply distrusted each other. And that's the point to be made about the Northern Ireland Agreement. They didn't suddenly, you know, come to a kumbaya movement at moment and start hugging each other. Just, just the opposite. They didn't trust each other a bit. Uh, so the whole uh, architecture of the uh, of the uh, uh, of the kind of governance structure that was created uh, on, for the Good Friday Peace Agreement in Northern Ireland uh, was done to assure a kind of uh, equality and uh, veto power on both sides for groups who didn't trust the other side a bit. Uh, and it's it's worked. Uh, there have been, you know, some incidents since then. It hasn't been perfect. Uh, but, but it's, you know, the last time I went to Belfast, I remember the first time I went there was in the middle of the Troubles. And there was a big wall right down in the middle of the city that separated the two sides. And uh, you know, they, they deeply mistrusted the other side and were fearful of the kind of horrible acts of terror uh, that would occur and, and ha had occurred uh, to people who wandered over the wrong side or were caught in one of these black taxis uh, and taken off in a different direction that they had planned. But then the last time I went there, uh, there were holes in the wall, <laughs> there were gates in the wall and no guards. You could just walk through. You could walk back and forth between the two sides of the city. Uh, there were two, still two sides of the city, but you could walk back and forth. And that, to me, symbolized the achievement of uh, of the peace in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, could something like that happen in Israel and Palestine? Well, it's interesting that when Obama was president, the person he sent to be the kind of uh, negotiator was George Mitchell, the senator from Maine, who is, despite his name, Lebanese in background and understands the Middle East fairly well. Uh, he's the guy who helped to engineer the Good Friday Agreement in Ireland. Uh, he was, uh, you know, the outside negotiator. Uh, but even George Mitchell kind of threw up his hands and gave up after after a few weeks because there has to be a will to do this. Uh, people have to want to find a solution before there can be a solution. Uh, but as the Northern Ireland agreement indicated, I think there can be solutions. And I have uh, friends, uh, Israelis and Palestinians working on several options. One of the most interesting is an Israel-Palestine confederation. Right. Uh, that's um, for people that don't know, Joseph Avasar, who's coming on my show soon, runs oh, the Israeli-Palestinian confederation. And I think he's doing very interesting work with that, if you want to comment. Yeah, no, I've had Ed Joseph for years. I've had him come to my classes on on global conflict. 
to conduct a simulation of what a parliament, an Israel-Palestine Confederation parliament would, would look like. And it's very well thought through. I mean, it doesn't solve all the problems, uh, but it, it assures the sovereignty of both Israel and Palestine. There will still be in Israel. They'll still have its own Knesset, its own parliament, and, and still will, Palestine will still have a Palestinian authority in its own Knesset. But they will... It essentially erases the kind of physical bar barriers between the two regions <clears throat> and allows for a shared territory and then also a, a shared parliament, kind of like the EU, uh, which is an additional government structure on top of the existing structures that deals with matters of mutual concern, health, education, uh, transportation, communication. You can think of all sorts of things that affect both sides and also deal with disputes on both sides. I mean, that if that such a thing existed, it would be the logical place to 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 bring the kind of Hamas conflict into uh, into consideration. There might not have been a Hamas conflict if there was an Israel-Palestine confederation, uh, because it wouldn't have the support of the people, which, which is absolutely essential. Uh, if you don't have, and that's what Hamas depends upon, support support of the, of the people. If 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 Israel had tried to work with moderate people in Gaza to turn against uh, Hamas, it might have been far more effective in getting rid of Hamas than just coming in and now alienating those moderate Gaza residents uh, by treating them as if they were the victims. I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views, uh, Professor Jurgen Smeyer. What do you want my listeners, though, to get out of this conversation? We've been speaking for the past hour What's the one thing, one or two things you really want them to get out of the conversation we've been having? That none of these crises last forever. Uh, there's things change. There's hope for the future. Uh, there's a possibility of resolution, and we shouldn't despair. You know, one thing I keep hearing from certain people is that both Palestinians and Israelis have to put the grievances they have about the past behind them. I'm wondering what you think about that sentiment, because I think it's hard for a lot of Palestinians to let go of the Nakba, especially when it's in living memory. I think it's hard um, for Jewish people, especially now with October 7th, to let go of you know the past. Uh, and I, I think sociologically, that's a hard ask of people. Uh, so what do you think of that sentiment that some have shared that, well, they just need to put everything behind them? Well, I think both things can be true. Uh, that that you can, you can, and you should uh, retain the memories of the past, and to try to as much as pos possible ameliorate them for the present. But also to look ahead and to try to plan uh, for the future, and not and not plan for the past, but plan for the future in such a way that takes cognizance of what has happened in the past and how to make sure that doesn't happen again. I want to thank you again, Professor Mark Jurgensmeyer, for coming for coming on Parallax Views, and I hope we can speak again at some point. My pleasure. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon. I cannot emphasize this enough. I only have one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window. Otherwise, it's you, dear listener, 
that helps keep this show afloat and I could really use your monthly donation at patreon.com slash parallax views. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallax views. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.